Hello, everyone. This is Stories from the Well, a podcast brought to you by The Well, a community of faith in Tulsa that gathers at tables every week around a shared meal to help each other find our place in God's story. We do that through food, conversation, fun, music, and of course, storytelling. Sometimes the story is from the Old or New Testament. Often it is from the life of Jesus. And sometimes it is a story from history or current events, or even in our own lives that helps us experience the goodness and love that God gives. You can listen to this on the go, on a walk, or in your office or living room. You can also listen alone or gather around a table with snacks or a meal and listen with friends and family. The hope of all our storytelling is that there is conversation and reflection that follows. So before you listen any further, think about how you will create space to respond to the story. Whether you pray, write it in a journal, discuss it with others, just know the power in the storytelling is how it helps you respond in your life. Welcome to our table. Welcome to Stories from the Well. Thank you for joining us today for Stories from the Well. Um, our guest today is my friend Eric Costanzo, and he is the senior pastor of South Tulsa Baptist Church here in Tulsa. Eric and I have been friends for, gosh, five or six years now, six years. and that's kind of a, a fun story of how we met. But before I introduce him and talk about how we met, I also want to acknowledge uh, my friend Anthony Archie, who is another pastor at The Well. And Anthony also works for the One America Movement, which he may talk a little bit more about at some point, but leads some great initiatives there and does a lot of leadership and storytelling for us at The Well. We also love his kids and his family, his wife. She's amazing. She's a rock star. And so I'm just really grateful that Anthony uh, helps with so many of these these projects where we're really having good conversations. So Anthony, first of all, thanks for helping with this today. Oh, it's so great to be here, Pastor Denise, and just hanging out with you. You are the best, and um, I think everybody should like, subscribe, and share the podcast. Thank you. Good play. You should do it. You should do it. Most definitely. I was reading about Pastor Eric, and um, he gets busy. He is he is a born and raised in Tulsa. Okay, I was doing my research. OBU, Oklahoma Baptist University, graduate, master's and PhD from Southwestern in Dallas. He pastors one of the most prominent uh, Southern Baptist churches here in Tulsa. Um, you're the executive director of Rising Village, which is a nonprofit that serves refugees. You're on the Tulsa Race Commission? The, ra- the Tulsa I Race Massacre? I was on the Race Massacre Commission, yes. That's awesome, dude. And... Um, your work has been featured in Fox on Fox News, Newsweek. You're married with four daughters, four kids, two sons, two daughters. Oh, two. Okay, two sons, yep. two daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, Pastor, I just want to ask you. Number one, it's an honor to have you here. But where does your uh, passion for um, the global church, for for refugees, for welcoming people who are different than us, where does that come from? Why is that so strong in your heart? Well, I appreciate you reading all those things that it's important to point out that I'm 43 years old and I didn't do all of those things in one day. Uh, but Just a week. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but I've been very honored to 
be invited to be a part of things like the Tulsa Race Massacre Commission, the Centennial Commission, and our work with refugees and immigrants has been something that the Lord has just opened a lot of doors for and invited me into in the last decade. And so there's a lot of things there that I'm sure we could talk about. But those things, to go with your question, are things that have really come towards me and I didn't pursue. And I feel like you know, the Lord cleared a path for me to be able to participate. And a lot of my work in issues related to refugees, immigrants, the global church, the marginalized, the poor, they've been more learning experiences for me at times than they have been active. And I think that that's how I, where a lot of that heart and passion comes from is that I've just really been blessed to have opportunities to engage in things that if any of your other listeners, and I know you have both had experience working in areas with folks who are marginalized, once you get involved in that kind of work, you can't help but have a harder passion that's for true. it. You know that that's that that God is uniquely present in those situations, and He has a heart for those who are vulnerable and marginalized. And so, the more you engage, that there's really nothing like that. So, I, I can't say that my whole life, I've always had that kind of passion. It's something that's grown as, as in me as a, an adult, and it's made me feel most of the time like I'm most connected to where God is at work when I'm doing that kind of, of spending that kind of time learning and listening and engaging with folks. Yeah, I think, I think that's really awesome. Um, what I just picked up on is um, your, your willingness to learn. Um, yeah. There, there may be somebody, you know, listening who is like, well, you know, I don't particularly have a passion for people around the world or I don't feel like I'm built to like be a missionary to, that travels across the world, um, which is fine, but you you were willing to just learn. Like if the opportunities came to you, you were willing just to say, God, what are, what are you trying to do? Let me lean into it and take it step by step. So it's this book that I'm holding in my hands. You gotta get a copy of it. It's called Inalienable, Inalienable. It's um, an amazing book, How Marginalized, Kingdom Voices can help save the American church. And uh, I don't want to be like presumptuous, but if you've been watching the news, if you have been listening, if you've been breathing, the American church is in need of some saving. Uh, <laughs> Christ is doing the saving, but I think he might, uh, he might have some partners in the global community. Tell us, why did you write this book? Well, my... Two co-authors, Matthew Sorens and Daniel Yang, and, and I, when we, the three of us, were working through that subtitle, we actually, we actually played with words like uh, save the American church from losing its soul. Uh, <laughs> I think that's kind of at the heart of where we see the, the there's there are lots of signs in a lot of American churches, and then maybe we just use that title or that, that, that language of American church as a, a general term that there's a lot of signs of unhealth and sickness. And yeah, we've had some interesting discussions about this with folks who have already read the book. Well, are you talking about my church? Are you talking about only the white evangelical church? Are you talking about African-American churches? Are you talking about Catholics? Uh, who are you talking about here? And I think any of us would say, whatever faith community we're a part of, it's not perfect. We all have okay. things. I mean, you talked about listening and learning. We all need to be teachable for our whole lives. 
So there's never going to be a point until some point when, when Christ says enough is enough, you know, and he, he returns. There, there's always going to be some area where we need to grow and learn. And I think there's joy in that, being a lifelong learner. But I think we could agree that overall there is a lot of unhealth in the American church and any, anyone that can fall under that umbrella, you could find some area of, of needs for improvement. I would say that throughout the book we deal with evangelicals more than anyone. And probably, in fairness, because that's the world that we're insiders in. Right. Myself, Matt, and Daniel. We're all a part of the evangelical world in one way. Now, then neither of them are Baptists. Daniel was for a while in, in the Baptist church, but he's not now. But, but still, we engage mostly probably with American evangelicals. And American evangelicals, we, we could, you could do a series of podcasts, Pastor Denise, <laughs> about all the problems with American evangelicals. But, yeah. you, you know, at some point you'd, you'd be more discouraged if <laughs> that's all you talked about. Well, and it made me think kind of your overarching idea of how marginalized kingdom voices, this subtitle, how marginalized kingdom voices can help save the American church. I think for me, the, the challenge, the inner challenge as um, someone who's been a part of the evangelical world um, is just looking back on our history and thinking maybe the reason we're sick, maybe the reason there's all this unhealth is because we haven't been learning, we haven't been asking questions about what we need to do. To, you know, we, there's all, and I have a few questions about like posture anyway, we're talking about that a lot at the well, like our posture has not been one of humility and so in so many ways that we've done ministry and tried to, with good intentions, you know, share the gospel story across the world, sometimes our posture hasn't been enough, enough had enough humility for us to recognize, you know, the, the symptoms of being sick, right? The things that we need to address. So, um, I mean, I, I appreciate that, that I think the place we start is to look at our own tribe, right? We look at our own... Mm -hmm group in our own family and ask the question. Um, before we go on, I want to I wanna talk about um, how Eric and I met because it, it points to uh, the next question that I want to ask him. Um, so I was on uh, associate pastor at Redeemer Church here in Tulsa, and um, also I serve on the board of the One America Movement, which is an organization in D.C. that, um, uh, that tackles polarization and is trying to help us realize we're not as um, divided as we think we are, and so how we treat each other, you know, we, we can learn how to listen and have conversations even when we disagree and not have um, a zero-sum game happening um, in our faith, in our political, and in our cultural worlds. Um, but anyway, the, our, our executive director um, called me one day and goes, hey, do you, know, do you know a pastor there in Tulsa named Eric Costanzo? And I'm like, no, I haven't heard that name. He said, well, he's the pastor of South Tulsa Baptist Church. And I'm like, ah, well, I'm feeling a little conviction here now because that church is right around the corner from me. And I thought, I guess I should call him and meet him. So I think you had liked something on Twitter or you had connected with One America, something they had done or said. And so then our executive director was like, you should reach out to him. So one day I was walking into Louie's. I don't know if you remember this, but I walked into Louie's Grill here in Tulsa and Eric is sitting there, I didn't know this, having lunch with our other associate pastor, Adam. And Adam starts to introduce Eric, and he gets your name out and starts to say who you are. And I'm like, I'm supposed to meet you. And you're like, <laughs> you're like whoa there. 
and then we just connected and Eric and another pastor, uh, Everett Lees, who's the vicar at um, Christ Episcopal around, around the other corner, we just like every six months or so, I'll sit and have coffee and talk about ministry and talk about what's grieving our heart and in the world, how we can be better at what we're doing, how we can lean into the presence of God and um, the things that we want to see change in. And so it's really exciting for me that from a lot of those conversations, there have been some partnerships of working on projects together that have emerged, but also just this book. Like I know from you know five or six years of conversations with Eric that this book is the heart of um, what he's been at work doing. So that leads me to my next question. You have um, uh, some information in the book that talks about the fact that global Christianity is becoming less American and European. Um, it used to be 82% of the world's Christians lived in the global north. But now, 70% of the world's Christians live in the global south. And the most common language spoken by Christians is Spanish. And I feel like that's quite a change. That is quite a reversal flip-flop, and I'm guessing it really has an impact on how we see faith community in our country, how we think it should function, what the work needs to look like, and Anthony even had a great illustration of what that looks yeah, like. Yeah, I, I was, it was so funny. I was reading your book, and um, it's, <clears throat> I, I imagine a big basket, and I think, like, if you put um, the name of every Christian on the planet inside this big basket, and you shook it up and you pulled it out of out of a hat. You would likely be reading the name of a of a young woman in the southern hemisphere who speaks Spanish. But yet, I went to seminary. You went to seminary. I'll just speak for myself. How many books did I read from a you know, Spanish-speaking female, young female, about faithfulness to the gospel? And I'm thinking. As an, as an American Christian, what benefit, there's this disconnect, what benefit do I have as, a, as an American Christian, as a pastor, opening myself up to international voices? Like, like what, what do I risk missing out on if I, if I don't do that? Like, why is it important for us to open ourselves up to the global voice of the church? You, you all are asking a really great question, and this is probably one of the more common questions we've had so far about the book you know went in the introduction when we we tried to say so who are the marginalized voices where we're we're reaching into here you know it, we we talk about more than just the global church we we dig into the ancient church a little more uh, i know this is not true in your church nor mine but in a lot of american churches there's very little knowledge of the historic church. Right. There's a lot there's there's a big gap between the new testament and the reformation if you go to a protestant church like for 1500 years the holy spirit wasn't doing anything you know or the church wasn't right and that's not that's not true and so we bring in a lot of voices from the ancient and historic church we bring in a lot of voices from strong female leaders and not not that we believe god marginalizes our female leaders but the church has done that in america and we bring in a lot of voices from the global south and places where there's a lot of poverty and then we bring in a lot of global Christians, but it seems like that's the one people are picking up on the most, which is really exciting. And you're asking the same question. Is this, it's exciting to know that 
places that previously were seen as unreached or seen as the mission field, quote, you know, now are primary Christian centers. And whereas we've already talked about one of the signs of unhealth in the American churches are declining numbers, there's exponential growth happening in Africa. There's exponential growth happening in South America and in East Asia. And in some of the most persecuted places, mm -hmm. there's the most growth. And that growth is not nominal. It is, it is depth. I mean, these are folks who are willing to, to pay a great cost for their faith. And so we obviously, if we have a lot of unhealth and we see signs of great health and growth and people who are passionately in love with Jesus really want to grow deeper in his word and really are living out their faith when we don't see that as often as we'd like here, then obviously we have some things we want to learn there. And I think it's important that we don't think the global church wherever, whatever context we're talking about, that they're perfect. You know, that no church is perfect. No community is perfect. There are some strengths that the American church still has that maybe a lot of churches in the global South don't. It would be wonderful if we could each, if we could all have that kind of teachable relationship with each other. But I think it would benefit us to your question too, Anthony, right now as American Christians to put ourselves more in a listening posture. Yeah. And, and learn from our global brothers and sisters. It makes me think of a friend of mine who teaches at uh, Wheaton. His name is Dr. James Huff, and he leads a program at Wheaton that sends college students to Africa to study and learn for a semester in ministry, but it's a reversal. The whole program is you are going to go to the African church and you're going to sit under the, the leadership of African Christian leaders in their nations and you're going to learn how to do ministry there. And so you're not there to teach or to help or to rescue or to make things better. You're there to learn. And I just think that that's, and he says it, it rocks their students' world. Like it just rocks their world. And then, so I, I love that that's an intentional practice of posturing, but we can't send everybody someplace else, right? So right, but we do that. Side somebody does that because their world has been rocked in that setting like mm -hmm. you and I have experienced. Yeah. And, but you also, we talk about this a lot, Denise, there, you don't have to go right. on a plane overseas to engage with the nations. It doesn't matter where you live now in the United States, you can engage with people who come from different cultural contexts. And, uh, and, and the only reason that doesn't happen more is because we keep ourselves in echo chambers and mm -hmm. silos and, we don't seek it out, but it's available. And a lot of the global Christians we talk about or even quote in the book, they live here in the United States. Yeah. And one of the most common people we quote is a gentleman from here in Tulsa named Hao Swan Kai. He's a Burmese leader here in our city. I wondered city. if he was from and Tulsa. Yeah, he's, he's actually the president of the Zomi community of Oklahoma right now. So he's okay. a very, very prominent guy in Tulsa. And man, his insights and when we ask him questions like, what surprised you most? What did you think the American church would be like before you came here as a refugee? And then what has surprised you? And their insights are so helpful. And when I've shared, I've had Howe at our church many times. And when he shared that with our folks, they receive it so well. And they're just like, we didn't see that about ourselves. Thank you for pointing that out. And, and, and just like a simple example, this didn't come from Howe, but this came from one of our Nigerian friends. 
She said, you know, the thing that surprises me most about American churches is how fast your parking lot's empty after church. <laughs> She's like, you're missing the best. The best, best thing part. in the Nigerian church is after we finished worship and prayer, our day of, our, our day of worship keeps going. Mm. We, that's when we break out the food. That's when the kids go outside and play. That's when we sit and have long conversations and we grow. And you all hit the parking lot and you're gone, you know. And I was like, that is so true. And those are those are the kinds of insights we're talking about. It's not as if our global brothers and sisters are the ones criticizing us. We're taking the posture in this book of doing some self-critique. Yeah. And by the way, inalienable is not negative. It it starts out because you have to establish problems. problems. And when you do that, it's not always pleasant. But the majority, we pray, the tone of the book, the majority of it is hopeful. And those global Christian folks always would say, by the way, we love the American church and we're so thankful for you. They, they're not criticizing us. Those observations are very helpful if we'll listen. And I don't think we would even be sitting here having this conversation or you would have written a book or all these conversations happening in other spaces if we weren't hopeful that we could learn and move forward and and really identify, you know, the challenges that are before us and like not ignore them, but really embrace where God might be leading. I love this idea. You guys talk about the idea of a church being locally present and globally influenced. And so that sounds to me like one way that a person who is just living their life in Tulsa or you know Chicago or Florida or wherever they get up every day they go do their job um, you know they come to church on Sundays and maybe Wednesdays or they're in a small group like seems like the idea of being locally present and globally influenced is very much a possibility for our everyday life so you want to unpack that for us a little bit of what, what you guys discovered in that or how you formed that idea? I don't know if you you all come across this, but people, and, and maybe part of it is just living in the part of the country where we live here in Tulsa, which I, I mean, we love Tulsa. I love being here and I always tell people, Tulsa's more Midwest than it is deep South, but right. we're influenced by all of it. We're yeah. influenced a lot by Texas and, and you know, I don't know how influential we are, but we're, we're kind <laughs> of a, a mishmash of all of those different states around us. We have been called the Paris of the Midwest. You do know that, right? Oh, really? <laughs> we, we, we. The Paris, Texas of the Midwest? <laughs> I, I, don't quote me on that. But I read that a few years ago. You know, all of our kind of renaissance of art and music and stuff that's been happening, which I think we all, Tulsa has had some really wonderful and interesting growth um, culturally the last few years. But yeah, I did read that. The driller so, is... The dr I don't know if you can agree with it, but I just thought I'd put that in there. Sorry. The, no, no the, the, drill, the driller is our Eiffel Tower. That's, <laughs> yeah. That's okay, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> that's funny. Um, people here, when you talk about, when you use the word global, they get nervous. Like, if you say global missions, they don't. But if you say be globally influenced, they might depending on what they see on Facebook or what their preferred news source is or whatever they might think you're talking about, some kind of globalist, 
one one world, one language. You know, it, it, it gets the the waters get muddy. At least in some of my conversations, I will have to explain. You know, there's a there's all there are all kinds of benefits from widening your worldview. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, mostly we're talking about global Christian influence, but there's also great benefit to learning more about how cultures and peoples in the world live and think. I as easy example of this is with all the folks from Afghanistan that we've worked with in the last year, right. which has been hundreds. Of course, we're very involved in the work, and I immediately put in some of our key folks who have worked with Muslims before. But we had several volunteers who had never met a Muslim person except in a restaurant, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody selling them food or something. And they were surprised that the Muslim people were not much different than them. Mm -hmm. They, They obviously dress different, eat some different foods, but, you know, it sounds silly for somebody to say... They love their children. Yes, they do, just like you do. Mm-hmm. These families were so welcoming. They're so kind. They're funny. Yeah, they're funny. They yes. have a sense of humor. They're really intelligent. And, um, and, and I think those experiences for every one of those folks would say that has enriched them. Yeah. So was that a Christian? Was, was that person a global Christian? No. Or was that a Christian influence? No. But even just that cultural engagement that they saw the image of God in a new way. They saw humanity in a new way. And so I think that level of global influence can be impactful for us and for our churches. But then when we talk about where, where the global church can Im- impact us, uh, one story I like to share a lot is, is with some of the work we've done in India. I'm often asked just because of my role as a pastor and a, and a teacher, when we go to India to train large groups of pastors, and a couple of years ago when we went before COVID, they asked me a few things like, would you, would you pick a really hard book from the minor prophets? And I was like, they're actually all pretty hard, except for, <laughs> except for maybe Jonah. Um, would you pick a hard book from the minor prophets and teach us how to teach that book? Which I'm immediately thinking, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Right. I want to dialogue with you all right. about how we teach this. But that a lot of those pastors have just not had the seminary education that we've had and they haven't had the benefit of the library resources we've had. So I understood what they meant. Then they said, would you, would you do a session about pastors and their families? Because a lot of our Indian pastors, they just work so hard. They're neglecting their wife and kids. Yes, I can talk about that because we've all faced that pressure. Sure. Then can you talk to these pastors about how to endure persecution and I was like, absolutely not. No. We will have a real dialogue on that because this is a reality they're facing that I would love to talk about from what does scripture say to us. But I, that's where I need them to teach me. Mm-hmm. And I want to hear their insights on the book of Hosea. Mm-hmm. I want to hear from some of the Indian pastors who recognize the problem of neglect of family. Because I need those reminders too. And that's the problem. I think we've, and, and even uh, I've heard the phrase recently, decolonializing missions. Oh, yeah. I've heard that we, too, yeah. We've had that mentality for so long that we're bringing the gospel to the nations. And, and so how would we not then look at it in such a paternalistic way that it's like we're the Savior and we have all the answers. And that 
that global influence is just even simply from having a dialogue with the people we think we're supposed to teach. We learn so much from them in that kind of relationship. So that can be a, a paradigm for just human relationships, I learning from each other. And I know Anthony has another question, oh, but sure. I want to piggyback on something really quick. Um, you, you talked about they ask you to speak on persecution and... Um, I mean, even as recently as this week, I've, I've heard a Christian leader kind of talk into the persecution narrative of in our country, um, you know, our faith being under siege kinds of language and we're being persecuted. And I, so I'm totally laying my cards on the table here. I struggle with that based on even that question that you were asked. Like, you're like looking at their lives in India going... I have no idea what they're going through. It doesn't mean that we don't have difficulty or we don't have um, don't have days where you know things are pitted against us. But I'm curious how, if you guys, I know you talk about it a little bit in the book, but how do we look at that? Um, how do we look at that persecution narrative? How do we right size that for um, our church communities and help people certainly understand bad things can happen. We can even be attacked, but. How, what do we need to do about that? How do, we, how do we respond to the persecution narrative in the American church? We call it the persecution complex <laughs> in the book. And, and we don't speak about it favorably. When you look at you know, genuine persecution in places around the world where there's a lot of, of American Christians would maybe feel persecuted when they get holiday blend instead of Christmas blend at Starbucks, <laughs> which Starbucks has both, obviously. But. And they're very upset, and they cry, and they yell at the workers and <laughs> the baristas. Uh, we, we could, let's not go off on that topic too <laughs> okay. much, but um, on the, it's not that there is no persecution here. Right. And, and we, we do have a bit of a benefit living in Tulsa. Mm-hmm. I mean... I laugh at how many of our Sydney city ordinances have exemptions for churches. So that is, that is something we benefit from. And maybe in other parts of our country, we wouldn't, but I don't see a widespread persecution here, but a lot of people are afraid that it's coming. What I find interesting is that the responses that people who are really pushing that persecution narrative then are advocating for are not biblical responses. It's things like, so we need to strike at them before they strike at us. And we need to, we need to take them to court or we need to, uh, you know, it, it's like it, it, none of it matches the way the persecuted Christians in the New Testament talked about it. How Peter talked about honor even those who persecute you. Honor the emperor, respect everyone. Paul says the same thing, where, where it was, long as it is, wherever is possible for you, you make peace with everyone. And, you know, did, did, did Paul and Peter then just acquiesce to everything? No, they were martyred by the empire. But the response, if people that are pu- pushing the persecution narrative, if we're listening to them, then we need to judge how they're advocating we respond to persecution by Scripture. And most of the time, it is not that at all. It sounds more like how uh, politicians are being taught to attack each other and mm-hmm. and go but and behind closed doors and sneak attack and, you know, strike them before they strike us. That's the complete opposite of what Christ taught us to do. And it seems like when we take that posture, we definitely are not ready or willing to listen to the marginalized voice in our life. 
like we, we won't have ears to hear mm-hmm. what they have. Anthony, you that's gotta... true. That's true. So I want to I want to change gears just a okay. little bit. Ask you about um, um, some things from the book. Um, so part of part of our work, uh, you you and I, Pastor Denise, we're part of uh, the One America movement, and specifically, I am, am one of the leaders of the Matthew Five Nine Fellowship. We're a collective of of uh, hundreds of pastors across the country who are really committed to um, to shepherding our communities to to really place our, our identities in Christ as, a, as opposed to, you know, some sort of political agenda. Um, and we recognize that in our country, pastors and Christian leaders are um, trusted voices. There are still many people, millions of Americans who love their churches, love their pastors, love their Christian leaders. Um, but what was troubling, and you pointed this out in the book, um, and Barna has, has released research. Uh, it's the 45 under 45 stat that actually 46% of American pastors under the age of 45 have seriously considered quitting, working for Uber, going, going to Target, just leaving completely um, in the last 12 months. Um, as a pastor yourself, with with the pandemic, with the racial unrest, with all that's going on, how what's going on with pastors in the country, and what is your encouragement to them in these difficult times? Anthony, I remember in 2020 and 2021 hearing that at our state level in Oklahoma in Baptist churches, we uh, one of our leaders said there are first Baptist churches because you know, every town has a first Baptist <laughs> and some have a second, third, and fourth, but. <laughs> There are first Baptist churches all over Oklahoma without pastors right now because so many quit in during the pandemic and it is tough to to see those statistics when and then you you know you know the longer you pastor in a particular area you know the names and faces of of pastors who have left and I think it's a combination of things the Barna survey I, I read that report like I read almost everything Barna puts out they're always so helpful. And they gave some reasons that people identified, you know, and a lot of it had to do with with things related to the pandemic or politics or, um, you know, just general complaining or stress. But I think what a lot of it boiled down to is a lot of pastors feel like they can't win either way. The pandemic was an example. You either did too little or you didn't do and you did too much for people in terms of protocols you put in place. Mm when it comes to politics you're either getting too political which usually means for people now you're touching on an issue i don't agree with mm-hmm. or you're not political enough which means you're not you're not pushing hard on that thing that i'm passionate about or you're not advocating for the candidate i like or against the candidate i don't like in the general elections and things like that and so you feel like you know a lot of pastors feel like they can't win with the their congregation but they also feel by their convictions that they need to they need to speak to some issues or they need to make some decisions. But anytime you do, it's like you expect the blowback from either side because people get so polarized. And you know, you're facing this at the well. I'm I'm sure at times just our folks are under the gun in every area of their life. And the pandemic and the uh, the last two general elections, which have been really, really contentious. And that then were contested, mm-hmm. you know, 
they are at odds with so many people in their lives. I, I, I don't know how often you all hear about this, but I hear from people in my sure. church, my kids won't talk to me anymore. Wow. Right? wow. Or when we get together for Thanksgiving, these topics are off limits. We can't talk about these things. Or I, you know, my brother or my sister, we, 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 don't, we haven't spoken because of the election and, or because of COVID and, or vaccines. And so pastors are, their people are under the gun. And then as a pastor, if you're, you know, you're pushing on those conflict buttons for people, even unintentionally, that, that blowback is going to come. But being a pastor is always stressful and it's emotionally exhausting and and usually though it, there's great benefit to all of that, mm-hmm. but there's not been a you add to the fact that then pastors are trying to decide do I re, how do I reopen my church or do we tell people to wear masks do we do social distancing our giving is down now we're facing inflation so there's there are a lot of factors but I think a lot of it does boil down to you they feel like they can't win in that role either way right now because folks are so polarized on things right there's. And there's these, there's the family and the individual trauma of the last few years. Sure. And then there's communal trauma. Mm-hmm. And so it's those layers, you know. So we're all struggling. I remember the moment, um, I'm sure it wasn't a moment, but there was a, there was a, a season where I realized, okay, in, in the span of six months here, you know, um, we started a church, COVID hit, we shut down meeting after the first or second meeting. My dad passed away. They, I, I was, I was adding up. I lost, like I'd gone off staff of a big church, and so I've lost that community um, of people that I did ministry with every day. So I was isolated as a church pastor, as a church planter, and then we're all like back in our homes, not interacting because of COVID. So it, there, I remember the moment I realized, man, this isn't just like what I'm dealing with on a personal level. It's what I'm dealing with on a vocational level. It's what I'm dealing with on a leadership level. How, how vulnerable can I be um, about how I'm feeling? Because I'm supposed to lead. I'm supposed to be strong. How much do I push people to help them do this better? Um, man, it was, it was pretty amazing. And I do remember thinking... Am I gonna make it? <laughs> I'm not sure well, if I'm gonna make it. Yeah, so many um, pastors thought thought the same thing. Am I gonna make it through? I, I always, when we've had this discussion with others, I do like to say, I've been very blessed that my church, which we, you know, we have a lot of folks, for and and when you have a lot of folks, you got a lot of opinions. We have a small number of folks you have a lot of opinions. <laughs> Our church did not beat me up at any point during this pandemic. Now, did I have a few times where somebody was upset or thought I should have done something differently? Sure. Did we have some people leave or did we have some people come to us because they didn't like what happened at their other church? And then I said, you know, actually, we didn't do things much differently than your other church. Yes, there were a few incidents, but overall, our church was really good to me and my family and our staff. And I'm really thankful because I read the Barna mm-hmm. report and, and some of the the reasons people gave. And then I've just heard a lot of those anecdotal stories or know of a pastor that left and they felt very beat up in a lot of cases and it didn't happen. And I'm really thankful for that. I think that we benefited. We pushed through some things in, in previous years where there were a few more conflicts, a lot of it related to work we did with refugees or political situations, but because we had established some good parameters for our relationships and, and dealing and discussing differences 
we came through this really strong and I felt very encouraged all along. Though I, there wasn't any time here I thought about quitting. Now, maybe a few years ago when we, when the travel ban happened with refugees and we were like right in the middle of doing work with refugees and that got pretty politicized, there was a time I thought they might ask me to quit. Mm -hmm. That's a different topic and that was, yeah. that was five years ago. So we oh, pushed sure. years, years But it says something about cultivating community, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you cultivated a culture that had enough experience underneath them to like know how to respond. So I think that says a lot to your leadership and just the time that y'all had already spent in cultivating what your, what your faith culture was going to be. Thanks for joining us for this first part of the conversation with Eric. Uh, it was great, wasn't it? I, I just enjoyed it so much. You can continue on uh, to part two and hear how we dig into a few other a few other topics that I think are super important. So join us for part two in episode six.